Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner and I'd like you to do me a favour guys. Close your eyes and think back to your worst experience with online dating, the most excruciating hinge disaster or Tinder catastrophe that you've been through. However bad you think that ordeal was, I promise you it's nothing on the jaw-dropping tale told in I Love My Dad, a movie that's part cringe comedy, part family drama and part horror movie for the MySpace generation. The film follows a screw-up father who's desperate to reconnect with the child he pushed away. Blocked on social media, this character, Chuck, played by Patton Oswalt, resorts to posing online as a beautiful young waitress whose friend request his estranged son will surely accept. The scheme is soon complicated, however, when the teenager begins to fall for the stranger in his DMs, growing determined to meet her in person. He's of course completely unaware that the person on the other end of his broadband connection isn't in fact a beautiful young waitress, it's his dad. Now, that premise, a teenager catfished by his own father, might sound like the logline for a zany, high-concept Hollywood romp, but what's so special about I Love My Dad is how grounded it is in the loneliness of being desperate for connection. The lure of the internet, the versions of ourselves that we present online, and the sometimes unhealthy fantasies that permits. These questions are all tenderly explored by the film's outrageously talented writer, director, and star, James Morosini, who it was a delight to chat with for this week's show. In the spoiler conversation that you're about to hear, James explains how I love my dad has such an air of emotional truth to it because, well, this actually happened, to quote the film itself. 
There are ways in which James's story deviates from the one in the film, but yes, his father really did catfish him in real life, in events that inspired his screenplay. We discuss age, sex, location, the title of James's first draft of the film, and why he opted against an early iteration of the movie that ended in Chuck having a heart attack and Franklin getting together with the real-life Becca, the young waitress that Chuck's been posing as. It's a fascinating conversation about the inherent performance of social media, how we're all catfishing each other to less explicit degrees, and why running towards the most vulnerable part of ourselves rather than running away makes for great storytelling. A huge thanks to James for being a great guest, and a massive thank you as ever to our Patreon community. If you like what we do and want to support the show, receiving exclusive bonus content in the process, patreon.com forward slash script apart is the address for you. We've got some great guests coming up and Patreon supporters will have the opportunity to put their questions forward to each and every one of them. So yeah, get involved guys. That address again is patreon.com forward slash script apart. We really do appreciate your support. Okay, that's enough out of me. Let's dive into the conversation. This is the brilliant James Morosini discussing the first draft secrets of I Love My Dad. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. James Morosini, welcome to the show. How's it going today? It's going great, man. It's, I'm happy to be here. Glad to hear it. Well, James, we're chatting just over a year since the release of I Love My Dad. And I I can imagine the ways that your life must have changed professionally in that time. Like, it's such such a great advert for your work as a writer, a director, and an actor. It was so warmly received. Um, People continue and continue to discover the movie. It it must have opened a lot of doors for you in terms of your career. I, I can wrap my head around that. What is harder for me to imagine, and it's the place I wanted to begin our conversation today, is what the last 12 months must have been like for you personally post-making I Love My Dad. Like, this was a film that I understand your therapist encouraged you to make, having obviously worked through some of your feelings with them around this unusual real-life situation with your dad that formed the inspiration for the movie. Now we're a year down the line. Do you, do you think you got out of I Love My Dad whatever it was your therapist was hoping for you to get out of it, like in terms of catharsis and perhaps even closure? It's a really good question. I don't know if we ever really get closure around anything. Um, I think we're just become, we become more open to explore things and ask questions that we, we maybe otherwise weren't willing to. Um, The, so, so the, 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 the idea of a father uh, wanting to make sure his son is okay. So he's willing to do and go to any lengths to make sure of that. That's what I was interested in, in this movie, but I was also interested in this idea of what do you do when somebody has done something unforgivable to you? How do you wrap your head around that? And is there a way, is there a way forward from that point? Um, and I thought that this was a useful context to explore that question. Um, and I do feel like, uh, after making this movie, I do feel like a more forgiving person in a lot of ways. I, 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 I don't know. I, I do have a tendency to just try to 
understand another person's perspective just because it makes going through the world uh, easier and more fun when you're like, you know, trying to understand why people are doing the things that they're doing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, I mean, I, I think more than anything, this feeling of like, when something really resonates with you, that that's a good indicator that it will resonate with other people as well. I think making this film has just reinstilled my belief in that kind of basic principle of storytelling that in order to move others, you need to move yourself first. Um, and, and so I, I find myself, um, kind of keep holding that as a target in, in all of my work. That's really interesting. Obviously, the the story is so unusual, James. Like, it, it, it's not on paper a universal experience. Like, being, being catfished by your dad is not a commonplace thing. But people have really connected emotionally with I Love My Dad. You know, they, they found something in the material that's made them contemplate their relationships with the internet, with social media, and, you know, even members of their own family. Did you anticipate that as, as you wrote the film? Was was there a sense that maybe the tale being told in this movie was, was a blown up version of familial relationships that a lot of people have had to navigate or feelings that people are, are navigating around, you know, their online existences? I think all of us have complicated family dynamics, whether or not our parents have created a fake account to to try to make sure we're okay doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I guess I was, I'm interested in the parent child relationship because I think it represents a uh, kind of an early model that we all have for intimate, what intimacy looks like and uh, is the model we kind of use going forward out into the world uh, after that. So I, I'm always interesting. I'm always interested in exploring that relationship because I think it's, often reflected throughout the rest of our lives. Um, I am a believer that if you take somebody's worst moments uh, and make a reel of those worst moments, they look like a terrible person. And if you look, if you take somebody's best moments, they look like a saint. And so I wanted to look at some really difficult to understand behavior, like, someone creating an account to catfish their son and then kind of build the argument for that behavior in the wrong direction. Because when we do something wrong, uh, it doesn't come out of nowhere. We may, there's kind of a, you can track the thinking and, and the reasons for why you're doing the, the a thing you may even know is wrong and I, I find that that's um, that's a those are my favorite films where you're seeing why somebody does the wrong thing and you're really building the case for why they should do that. Um, that there's really no other way for them to do it. Um, and and yeah, man. I mean, I th I think a lot of us we all have problems with our family in some way or another, but. I think there's a we all have a lot of shame around talking about these things openly. Uh, when they're happening to us, it can feel like we're the only ones that are going through it. And so, I guess I'm a big believer in trying to tr trying to express these feelings as as much as possible and and kind of be open about them. 
That's really beautiful. And, you know, there was something you said earlier about like this film making you a more forgiving person. When I when I tell people, you know, the log line of this film and then I tell them you won't believe how how much the uh, your empathy lies with the uh, with the dad and you totally track why he did the things he did. People are like, really? You know, and then they go away and watch the film and then they're like, wow, yeah. You know, the the compassion that you extend towards Chuck in this film and by virtue, you know, by extension, your dad, you know, it's it's pretty remarkable. When you talk about the film having made you more forgiving and the process of writing it having made you more forgiving, was it kind of an iterative process, like finding that forgiveness on the page? Like the 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 empathy that you extend towards Chuck in this, was there like... um was that something you kind of had to work towards and discover in drafts or was the intention always to set out to make a movie that kind of did kind of take this uh this behavior that on on paper seems kind of crazy but actually like when you look at it up close and you understand the reasoning it's like you kind of can't help but root for them yeah i think it was a constant balancing act of making chuck's behavior uh it 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 couldn't be so horrible that we don't uh, that we can't get behind him as the lead of the movie uh so where this came down was like what did chuck do to franklin uh that made franklin push him away in the first place and we had a lot of conversations about this around should it be one specific thing or should it be kind of uh, just a general uh, series of disappointments that are just tangled and and so difficult to unpack that it's more of just a general feeling overall? And I leaned in that direction because I think if it was a specific thing that Chuck did to Franklin, uh, it would make us feel like Franklin was maybe being petty that he wasn't willing to forgive Franklin, uh, that that Franklin was not willing to forgive Chuck for that one thing. And it would kind of feel like, well, they should just sit down and have a conversation about this one thing. And then, you know, that'll be the end of it. But it felt more honest to these kind of long relationships in that it's rarely just one thing. It's like, uh, it's one thing after another, after another that compound and then our reactions to them compound. And it, the, the, the difficulty of these intimate relationships is that they're so complicated and uh, they've taken place over so many years that they're almost impossible to unpack. So at a certain point, you kind of have to just be like, it is what it is. And I'm going to just accept you as you are. And we're never going to get to the root of, of it. Um, but yeah, I, I needed to show because c- whether or not I forgive my actual dad does it doesn't really matter to an audience that doesn't know me. I mean, if I if I do forgive him, great. But that my job as a filmmaker is to walk an audience through uh, a story and and to make them understand and not necessarily understand, but feel each step of, of that story. So I needed to show that Chuck was estranged. Uh, and I needed to show that he is making best effort, his best possible effort to to contact Franklin, and that none of these efforts are working. Uh, and then I need to show how he gets this idea, uh, and 
why he's willing to go down that path. And I need to, sh- and I need to have him do it in a way where he's questioning his own behavior throughout. Because I think if any of us were to catfish another person, let alone our, our own child, we would be real. Uh, we'd feel real weird about it. Uh, and so I, it need, it was important to me that he's kind of, he's, he's falling further and further into this behavior. Uh, and I also needed to show that Franklin was exercising at least some discretion uh, around who this person is, uh, but is ultimately so lonely that he's willing to go along with it and and is willing to kind of, um, he seems like willfully naive in a way because he's so desperate for, uh, for human connection in this case. That does sound like a really careful balancing act and a real like, yeah, tightrope walk to, to kind of pull off, you know, to zoom out a little bit, I think like, so this, this was not the first film of yours that uh, kind of introduced me to your work. Like I remember prior to I Love My Dad, I watched your, your debut feature, uh, Three Something. I remember you describing that film as a tale in which fantasy meets the hard road of reality. And that description kind of applies to I Love My Dad too. So yeah, I I guess I'd be curious to know, James, like why that gap between the way things are versus the way your characters desire them to be, why that is something that you seem to enjoy exploring in your storytelling. Like, you know, there's, there's a particular feeling that I always get from watching stories like that, where, you know, the delusion has to crash at some point and it, it breeds a tension and a sense of inevitability and dread. Is it a tonal thing that is uh, exciting to you or, or yeah, what kind of pulls you into that story type? I think I'm just, I find myself struggling with that in my own life a lot. Uh, This idea of like how much better things could be uh, and the ways we're going to go about getting to those places and how that often, uh, we often cling to these ideas and these fantasies as almost uh, an anesthetic uh, that numb us to how our lives are now. And so much of, uh, the problems in our lives come out of us trying to be someone we're not so that we can be somewhere else than we currently are. And if we were to just be more okay in our current circumstances, we might actually, uh, be all right overall. Uh, now I don't know if that's always the case. Sometimes you do have to try to go to another place, but it's a, it's a paradox I'm really fascinated by, um, of like, do you accept, do you accept your current circumstances or do you try to change them? Um, and three something it's about friends that are like, we should have a threesome. It'll be awesome. And they're pedestaling this, uh, this experience as being, kind of the solution to their friendship and to them feeling stuck at this moment in their lives. And I think in, I love my dad. It's like, you know, all the characters are doing it in their own way. Uh, Chuck is like, if I just can have a relationship with my son, everything will be okay. And Franklin's thinking, if I can just have a relationship with this woman that I'm meeting online, everything will be okay. Um, And um yeah, I mean, I I think um, I don't know if I have like a definitive answer around it. It's it's more so that I just think 
we often use fantasy as a as a drug really as a way of uh as a way of making ourselves feel better but that um it it gets in the way of us actually just being in our actual lives and um and so i like narratives that kind of explore that and walk us through it yeah and i, I suppose one thing that's also really unique to this movie is like it's hard to describe to people who um, who didn't grow up at a very particular time in, in the infancy of the internet, just how much like the internet blew open the idea of that fantasy. And basically, I wonder sometimes whether kind of like younger generations realize the degree to which I sound, I sound like an old man now, younger generations, <laughs> whether they realize, you know, the way in which like catfishing in that time of like the infancy of the internet, you know, when people convincingly claim, oh, my webcam's broken, it, it was kind of more feasible in a way that it isn't today. And I had friends who were catfished and uh, while, it, while it was never kind of the extent to, uh, you know, the situation and I love my dad, you know, there was something always quite like poignant about it, you know, quite, quite tragic, like both in the people doing the catfishing who were people who wanted to live different lives using digital avatars to, to indulge that fantasy, that drug-like fantasy as you, uh, as you described it. And of course, it's also tragic in the sense of like the people whose lives are disrupted by it. How much that you contemplated that as you built the film, the degree to which like younger audiences would be able to understand when we talk about the, the fantasy, the fantasies that exist across multiple ways that people use the internet, but specific to this film, did you kind of have any conversations about how you were going to broach that and how like younger viewers may, uh, they may have to have it explained to them? The thing I don't think has changed at all since the beginning of social media is this idea of us trying to represent ourselves in the most likable way possible. And so in a way, we're kind of all catfishing one another because we're putting together uh, we're, we're putting together this uh, this play, this kind of photo book, this collection of like, here is why I'm a, an appealing person. And, and that's that's the version of ourselves that we're interacting with other people as, but that's not who we are. It's such an incomplete <laughs> picture. Um, and there's something, there's something inherently uh, dishonest and also cringeworthy about this idea of us trying to get other people to buy in to this really kind of uh, this, this surface level representation of who we are. Uh, and so that was that was really the thing that I needed to get audiences on board for more than more than anything else. You know, I didn't want it to be uh, like a period movie from the early 2000s. Um, I just it was that that part of it was more important to me than anything else. This uh, the feeling that Franklin is representing himself uh, as this happy guy. Uh, and that Chuck is obviously representing himself as this uh, attractive waitress to, in order to make sure his son is okay. But the the realization I think uh, that Franklin has at the end is that he too was engaging with the uh, form of dishonesty, and and so that can't be the thing that he uh, just holds against his dad forever, um, because he's he's dishonest too in a way and and so um yeah man i i think i i wanted to use that kind of inherent dishonesty that 
that social media has as the vehicle for the film itself. And that's been kind of a, a running preoccupation for you. I, I remember like um, a couple of years ago, you did this uh, this proof of concept for a series you were working on called 6.35 p.m. PST. And the film, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, it basically shows a, a kind of a busboy in a restaurant trying to get his colleague to accept his Facebook friend request in the middle of some sort of seismic like alien events. There's some sort of invasion situation going on. And um, the Facebook friend request part is incredibly relatable. The alien invasion thing we, we haven't had yet, but uh, we rarely ever see that depiction of the kind of awkwardness and the kind of discomforts around social media and the sort of hypocrisies of it where it's such a like part of the fabric of our society now. We never really see it like acknowledged in films or it seems like something we're still kind of getting around to. So yeah, can you talk me through your relationship with with social media and why, you know, the nuances of the platforms, the discomforts it offers, the deceptions it allows, why that's something you, you do seem to enjoy tackling in your writing. This idea of like sending a friend request, it's just so like funny and sad to me. <laughs> yeah. Because that's really what we're all doing in our actual lives anyway. We're like, but but it's so vulnerable, this idea of like, Will you be my friend? <laughs> do you like me? Will you, do you think I'm a cool? Like th that's something we're all doing in some way or another, but we're, we disguise it in so many ways. And there's something about social media that where it's not, it's, it's undisguised. Uh, it's just like, I'm going to send, I'm going to request for this person to be my friend. Uh, and it's just, I don't know. There's something like, there's like a, a weird, uh, there's like a weird nakedness to that in, in terms of just like how, how that's what we're doing, uh, <laughs> in so many of our actual interactions. But, uh, I feel like as social media has developed, uh, we've dressed, that's become more and more dressed up, uh, this idea of like, I'm sending you a friend request now. It's like follow. It's it's gotten a little more coded, but I think the foundation of it is still there. Is like, um, this feeling of all of us just really wanting to be seen and accepted for who we are, and um, but that we're all so we all seem to be so uncomfortable with the idea that that's what we're actually all trying to do and that that's what's driving so much of our behavior in the world. Um, yeah. I don't know. There, there was a part of your question earlier that I wanted to kind of get back to this idea of like, um, of, uh, of di just dishon of dishonesty and, and how we represent ourselves I, and, and fantasy versus reality. It's like, we're often so willing to feel however we feel. At, at any given time that we try to do so many things just so we don't feel our feelings. And I think that a lot of the stories I am interested in kind of take that uh, as an initial premise and then show the problems that occur because somebody's unwilling to accept their reality as it currently is. Um, you know, and if they had just accepted the way things were, they, it would have gone better for them. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Hey there, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you that support for this episode comes from Mubi. If you're missing out on Mubi, you're missing out on films by iconic directors and emerging auteurs. You're missing out on the only curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe, on which every film is handpicked by Mubi's team of expert cinephiles. You're missing out on unbelievable works of cinema like Under the Silver Lake, which I rewatched here in the UK this week. It is a sun-soaked sliver of LA paranoia in which Andrew Garfield unravels a Hollywood conspiracy while very much unraveling himself. If you'd like to check out that movie and countless others like it, you can do so for free right now for 30 days with our exclusive promo offer. Head to movie.com forward slash script apart and follow the instructions for a whole month of amazing cinema without paying a penny. That address again, it's mubi.com forward slash script apart, or you can click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. If you're a screenwriter looking for an intuitive way to pen that next great screenplay idea of yours, Arc Studio understands how you think and what you need to get in the zone and produce your best work. It has fantastic storyboarding features, its interface is miraculously distraction-free, and if you're one of those who has a writing partner, you're going to love their stress-free real-time collaboration tools, which are kind of similar to Google Docs. The software is being used by beginners and professionals alike, such as the team behind the Netflix show Arcane, and David Wayne, the writer-director behind Wet Hot American Summer. Arc Studio offers a completely free version of the software, meaning that anyone, anywhere can download it today and get writing, no matter their experience level. Or to unlock Arc Studio's full suite of amazing tools, you can get $30 off a pro subscription by heading to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. That address again, if you want to join the thousands of screenwriters who have already made the leap, it's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. That's interesting. Yeah, I think just to kind of like go back to something you touched on there, like I think one thing that you kind of need to factor into the equation when talking about like deceptions feels too heavy a word because as you say, we're all kind of presenting a version of ourselves on social media and it's it's kind of in, built into the platforms and it's almost encouraged by the platforms. You're, you're supposed to sort of share the, the sort of brightest parts of yourself. Yes. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, it's like we, we, it's a hard thing to even understand. I mean, anytime you post something, you're like, is this the kind of person I am? Should I post this thing? Like it, it involves this weird extra step of, of like how we're choosing to represent ourselves. It's I mean, prior to, media it was like yeah it's a performance exactly like yeah. prior to that it's like what clothes am i wearing today what does my hair look like like how how am i presenting to the world but this is like another like another narrative layer of hey this is how i want to be seen but i don't know none of us really th- there's not an answer to the question who am i we're all just constantly inventing that as we go and some of us are just more bought into the answer we've come up with than others um and um yeah i I, again these are all just like things that i think about and and i think found their way into the film in some way or another 
I, I think the hard work of writing a script comes down to like having these esoteric ideas and beliefs and then making them narratively compelling to an audience that doesn't want to just hear you ramble about your <laughs> perspectives on on social media and connection and loneliness like it's like how how do you make it entertaining and emotional and not just uh esoteric and intellectualized well that's the thing it's not like a lecture on social media or the dangers of being um being catfished if you like because i don't know my interpretation james of the film was that like this there's such it, it's rooted in such pathos and it's rooted in like this quiet emotionality this character franklin like it's not a case of he's being deceived and he's being tricked there's a certain kind of two-way street aspect to it where i think there's a longing on his part to be wanted by the seemingly most perfect person um on the other end of the broadband connection and it's such a strong feeling that desire to be wanted and uh to meet someone else and connect with them that like it makes him kind of park logic and ignore some of the red flags. And that to me is like, that's that's the kind of like heartbreaking thing about this film and the really moving thing about this film. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe that's a good good sort of segue into the script itself. And um, yeah, kind of like how you arrived at this very emotional finished version of the film, very funny, very dark, very compelling finished version of the film. Um, so the the story as as i have it it kind of dates back to 2015 and uh this script first date which uh was a story that happened to you and elements of it would end up in i love my dad but uh it was it was a very different story can you talk us through it yeah so when i was uh probably 13 or 14 i met a girl at summer camp uh and she and i stayed in touch via instant messenger my Instant messenger name was Bust Mav, short for Bust a Move. Uh, from Strong. The song Just Bust a Move, which I loved from the movie Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> uh, so for some reason, I was very attracted to that name as a screen name. And her name on AIM was Hot Mama Goose. Um, and we would talk about, uh, we would like instant message back and forth about the idea of us kissing. And because we never did, but we we both really wanted to French kiss. Um, but she lived in New Jersey and I lived in uh, I lived outside of Boston. My dad, uh, I, I told my dad about this and he volunteered to drive me all the way to New Jersey to go see a movie with her uh, and hopefully get the chance to kiss. And so she and I organized basically like. I mean, I guess you could call it like a play date, but <laughs> but my dad drove me all the way to New Jersey. It's like a six or seven hour drive um, and took us to go see Harry Potter. And um, I remember like sitting next to her the whole time and I couldn't work up the courage uh, to, to kiss her. I just was like looking at her face and looking away. And then uh, he drove her home, dropped her off and we, we drove all the way back home. And <laughs> so I, I just thought, and, and in the story, his character or the father character is like struggling with intimacy in his own uh, relationship. And um, I was interested in like the lengths someone will go to repair a relationship in some ways, but then their lack of willingness to do the same 
thing in other parts of their lives. Um, so that, that I wrote that movie. And then when I came up with, I love my dad, this idea of, uh, which again, something that uh, came out of a, uh, an experience I had with my dad, I, I realized, Oh, this idea of a father driving their son very far so that they can realize this connection they think they have um that could actually go into i love my dad and be the the second half of the movie uh, and so i kind of uh scavenged that whole story of this uh, of that script first date and put it into i love my dad as the second half so it's it's just interesting that you really never know what's going to happen with the the narratives you work on and uh if I had never written that script, I don't know if it would have made its way into I Love My Dad or if I would have ever made uh, I Love My Dad, really. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I am I really try to hold myself to this idea that I don't control the results of my work. I don't necessarily control if my work is good or not, but I do control uh, the volume of my output. And so I try to keep that, uh, high so that not everything needs to work. Uh, but if one in five movies I write, uh, works, then I need to write five movies so that, so that this can work. Yeah. Um, I think I remember you saying, um, I forget which book it was, but, uh, there was an interview years ago where you talked about reading a book that said nine out of 10 businesses fail. So, you just have to create 10 businesses and that being a philosophy yeah. that you tend to apply I think to everything. Rich dad, poor dad. Yeah. yeah. Nine out of 10 businesses fail. So you got to create 10 businesses. And I, I look at that for every area of my life really is like, well, nine out of 10 times, it's not going to work out. So you've got to try 10 times. Um, and I look at that when I'm writing a, a scene, I'll, I'll, I just try to focus on quantity and then I let uh, my instinct guide me toward like, oh, this, I like this one the most, but like just generating tons and tons and tons of options and pathways um, has been has been useful to me in terms of just not feeling overly precious about any particular direction. Um, I uh, yeah, the the first draft of I Love My Dad, um, which I sent you and I've never I've only sent it to one other person. It was Claudia from uh, from I Love My Dad. Um, who plays Becca? Who plays Becca? Yeah. Um, a weird thing about Claudia that I haven't talked about is that my dad's name is Claudio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's beside the point. Um, anyway, I sent her the first draft, and in the first draft, I'm basically like when I'm writing. A first draft of something i'm trying to be as unhinged as i possibly can be i'm trying to just like allow myself to be messy and not make sense and just be like kind of a mess on the page i'm like writing stuff in there that uh i would never want to show anybody and i'm i'm almost trying to uh give like show myself through how bad that first draft is like that you have permission to be to a total mess and anything goes in that first pass. Um, now that process is iterative. I'll, I'll, you know, 
I'll have a sense of the structure. So I'll have a, a, an outline prior to doing that first pass. And then I'll like go off the rails with that first pass. And then I'll like re-outline from that first pass. And then I'll basically like just do that again over and over and over. Um, and I'll, you know, and there's a couple weeks in between each of those um, attempts. And I, you know, and sometimes a lot longer and you get a, I don't know. I get kind of an intuitive sense of like, oh, this part of the story is really resonating uh, with me. And then this other part feels uh, more intellectualized or like for whatever reason isn't uh, isn't coming from my gut. And and I just don't understand it or see it as clearly. Uh, And so it's it's like uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like that that first draft is all about just like getting getting the clay out that I'm going to be working with for the rest of the the movie. So when you talk about trying to be unhinged in your first pass at a script, James, then going through a process of generating different pathways, different ways the story could play out. Can you talk to me about your first attempt at I Love My Dad, which was then titled Age, Sex, Location? Like what, what were some of the pathways you explored in that version and in other iterative versions of this story as you tried to kind of get the the calibration right of, of empathy, making sure the audience cared about Chuck, even though what he's doing is is kind of not great? Several things come to mind, one of which uh, is that there was a customer service person that Chuck connects to in the beginning of the movie, uh, and that person ends up being the Becca whose profile uh, he replicates in order to, to become Franklin's friend online. And then Franklin ends up falling for this person. And then this person had a second job as a, as a waitress at a diner. And so, and that felt kind of convoluted that she was like a customer service person and also worked at this diner. So I, I didn't do that. And there was another whole ending that, existed beforehand uh where chuck has a heart attack at the diner uh and then through that heart attack franklin connects in a more authentic way with the real becca uh and that uh so so in a way chuck's deception actually works because he got Franklin close to this actual person. I realized that wasn't the point of the movie because this real Becca is just some random person. Uh, and it has, it doesn't matter whether Franklin is connecting with this random person or not, because it's more about, it's not about, uh, the romantic love he was experiencing. It was like, he was experiencing a connection to this other person who was his dad. It just wasn't, uh, he, he, was connecting just this, the human underneath the, the, the representation of this person. Um, and, um, yeah, so those, those were a couple different pathways. I haven't read that version, uh, in a long time, but going back to this idea of being unhinged in the writing, I kind of feel like, I mean, being a filmmaker is a weird thing because you, you kind of have to be, you have to try to like tap into this like kind of unconscious part of yourself that's visceral and messy and super honest. 
And then you have to like position it in a way to a bunch of uh, collaborators and then also audiences that feels a little bit more buttoned up. And when you're, when you're working on something, um, it's just a different, I, I find that it's a different mode than when you're talking about the thing. Um, and so that's, that's been a process, you know, as I'm doing a lot of press for, I love my dad and, um, talking about the movie a lot. It's just such a different part of my brain than the part of me that's actually willing to go there and write and, and, um, not be polite. Um, and so I don't know when I, when I'm writing, I try to like, I, I sometimes try to isolate because I'm like basically giving myself permission to like go off the rails a little bit. I, I, I find that it's that those are the kind of, that's the energy I'm attracted to uh, in storytelling where it feels dangerous and it feels uh, like there's an aliveness to it. I I don't want to watch somebody that has media training doing uh, writing a, a first draft of a script or or writing a script at all for that matter like I, i'm not interested in like the buttoned up version of of a of an artist or, or a creative um yeah i don't know i mean so that that's more to say like energetically that's 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 how i'm trying to come to the table uh with my work and um I had uh, someone once tell me uh, you wear four different hats when you write. You can't wear any of them at the same time. First hat is madman, where you're just totally just going for it and you're you're crazy. You just get it all out. I don't know if I'm going to get these hats right, but I'm going to do my best. Second, I think, was <laughs> carpenter. Or no, sorry. Second was architect, where you're going in and you're like looking at kind of the general structure of the thing and and what the madman did on their first go round. And then the third is carpenter, where you're kind of evening the edges of things and and fixing what's there. And then fourth is judge, uh, and and you only put the judge hat on when you're you know those other three have gotten their chance to go in and do their thing. Uh, and that's where you go, is this actually working? Like, is this, is, is this, uh, you know, is this actually resonating? It's, it's the part of me that will share my work with other people and ask for, uh, really pointed feedback and, and, uh, kind of, uh, test the work to see is, is it, is the feeling I initially had recognizable in the work as it is now. Um, and then it's just a matter of go, like iterating and going through those steps again and again and again. And tell me, I, I can imagine there must've been such a eureka feeling when you cracked on the page, how you were going to approach the movie visually. Like the, there's a brilliant visual device in the film that allows Becca or rather the kind of fictionalized Becca who's actually Chuck um, it allows her to come to life and sit next to Franklin and engage with him. It excuses the, the movie from being 90 minutes of watching people on their phones. Uh, the, the playfulness of that device, you really push and push. There's a, there's a bunch of great scenes in this in which like that physical approximation of Becca is talking nonsense in the car with Franklin because Chuck is mistyping. And it, it becomes like a source of comedy, the visual device. 
But on the other end of the tonal spectrum, it's also the source of these devastating moments. And uh, probably, the, probably the most devastating is the pool sequence when Becca walks on water. It's this reminder that she's not actually there and it, it arrives at this real low point for Franklin. I'd love to zero in on that scene, James. And uh, yeah, like just hear a little bit about like how you came up with the pool scene and the degree to which it was hard to write because it, it's quite a hard scene to watch. So this idea of Becca walking out onto the pool, uh, I guess I saw it as like she's going somewhere where he can't follow, um, like she's going away. And there was something about her walking onto this like dirty pool in this this kind of uh, rundown apartment complex and, and then disappearing into the water. Um, that whole sequence came pretty late in the in the process for me. Um, and yeah, which is something I have to constantly remind myself of. Sometimes I'll compare uh, my initial efforts to finished work and it's just not, it's not fair uh, to do to oneself uh, because these things take so many different, so many passes and so many layers of, of effort. Um, so things like, uh, her speaking typos that came very late in, in the writing process and her walking on water came very late in the writing process and also was kind of something that, um, as I was getting more into prep, it was like, okay, I'm going to have this location. Then I was like, oh, I can make use of the pool in this way. And then everything kind of, uh, concretizes around, uh, these other elements, but, yeah, in terms of pulling from real experience, I mean, I don't know. I guess I was thinking about it in terms of like how hard it is to either be broken up with or break up with someone else because you're you're witnessing that moment from two different perspectives. You're experiencing it from Franklin's perspective who's being broken up with and is trying to grapple with uh this other person who is not making any sense. Uh, and then you're watching Chuck trying to let his son down uh, and is trying to basically end what he started by uh, breaking up with him, but but by not breaking his heart and, and by trying to let him down easy. Uh, and so there was something about like, there was something weirdly poignant to me about Becca saying all of this nonsense that she's, you know, having, she has to move to California or maybe Japan or like that. She's just frantically searching for um, this excuse for, for why she can't be with them. And an image that was in my mind as I was writing that scene was like the idea, the idea of like having to like, like one of the most heartbreaking scenes I've ever seen in a movie. I think it's in Airbud. <laughs> uh, it's this it's this part where he's like telling his dog, I think it's Airbud, it might be Homer Bound or some, but he's telling his dog to get lost. And he's like, go, just like go, go away. And he's like forcing his dog to run, run away. And that's that 
was the feeling I was, I was after was just this feeling of like trying to end it with someone, something you love, uh, even though it's killing you, you know? Where we go from there and how that sets up the the end of the film, James, is is kind of remarkable. You mentioned earlier that there were so many different endings of the film that you explored as you kind of, you know, did pass after pass at the script. At one point, you kind of considered putting Franklin together with the real life Becca before realizing that this is a film about a father and a son. So that's the relationship that has to be focused on in terms of a resolution. Can you talk to me about the ending and what was wrong about all those other iterations that felt right about this conclusion to the story? I think this I, something that fascinates me is this idea that um, that you can love somebody and that it transcends the specific of familial or romantic or or any other kind of categorization of love, but that you can like know some you can you can end up like really seeing somebody and and loving them in a way that uh transcends all these other categorizations so um i think i was chasing that this idea of these two people uh who really find out about one another and and get to know one another, even though they're lying about who they are through that process. That fascinates me that we can connect sometimes more easily through, through wearing a mask, that it makes us feel more comfortable in getting to be known by another person. Um, so that was one component of it. And then I guess the other was this idea that, uh, in many ways we become our parents. So it was important to me that, you know, Franklin has learned like, like Chuck has this limited set of tools that he's working with in order to connect with the people in his life. One of which is tremendous dishonesty. And through the process of, of going on this whole journey, Franklin kind of realizes Oh, I'm dishonest too. Uh, and so I need to forgive my dad because it's not all black and white. It's like he's not, it's not, he's not necessarily an evil person just because he has this one thing wrong with him. And there's there was kind of like a weird meta significance to the whole to that to that theme in the idea of making this movie. And I almost feel like in a way I was going through a similar journey as the creator of, of the piece, the movie starts with this actually happened. And it's like poetically it, a lot of it, you know, some of it actually happened, but a lot of it, I took a lot of poetic license with. So in a way I feel like I'm lying <laughs> And I'm being dishonest. And it, it this whole movie was almost like a way of being more real than I would have otherwise if I were to just state the literal facts of exactly what happened. Um, and so that that was that was resonant to me um, as well. I mean, I'm using my home video footage. I'm using uh, all these details 
of things that actually occurred, but then I'm also infusing a lot of narrative devices and things to heighten and things to subvert. Um, but yeah, in doing so, it feels like I'm able to express the feeling a, a lot more clearly uh, than I otherwise would have been able to. And I think at the end, Franklin is kind of able to do the same. Yeah, yeah. And let me ask you something else I've been wondering about. I asked you at the top of the conversation, James, about the catharsis that the film brought you. If you don't mind me asking, like, what what was the catharsis like in terms of what it brought your dad? Like, have you spoken to him about how the film perhaps lent him some forgiveness or some acceptance for how he behaved? Like, what's the current state of play in terms of his reaction to the film and how the empathy that the movie extends towards him maybe allowed him a kind of lighter perspective on, on what happened in real life between you guys. It's really interesting. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think so many of these conversations are happening non-verbally uh, more than anything else. And, and for me, the biggest thing my dad did was, like be kind of in on the joke of the movie and not fight against the movie that that to me was uh the most meaningful thing he's kind of one of the most meaningful things he ever did for me and early on in the process when he knew this movie was going to be released worldwide was he said i don't care how this movie makes me look because you're getting to do this thing that you've always wanted to do. Uh, and there was like a degree of uh, martyrdom in that, but there was also this kind of self-sacrifice that you don't see in, in Chuck necessarily until the very end. Um, and that, that uh, I, I guess that that's the most relevant kind of conversation or, or moment uh, that still really sticks with me um you know in it basically being able to like l- laugh at life and just kind of have a sense of humor about the absurdity of of different different parts of life i mean uh, my my interest in filmmaking really came from my dad as a little kid he, he and i would he would take me to go see movies every weekend and he gave me a video camera and uh, he was often uh, holding, the, I would tell him where to point the camera and I would act in things and, and direct him as I was telling little stories. And um, so in a weird way, the release of this movie felt very full circle. Um, and uh, yeah, really just kind of, I was, I was kind of blown away by his reaction to all of it uh, in that he was able to be so gracious. And is there a takeaway that you had from from the experience making this movie, James, around the value of not burying or running from the episodes in our lives that are painful or that bring initially a sense of shame, even if that sense of shame is unwarranted? Like a lot of people who underwent this experience with their father might never have told another soul. You told the whole world. You put it up on a giant movie screen. What did the film reaffirm for you? in terms of like how stories like that, that are rooted in the parts of ourselves we instinctively want to hide, 
that's where the realist storytelling is. That's where the most gripping storytelling is found. Yeah, it's a complicated question because I think ultimately, I mean, I, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act because like I feel like I'm beholden to uh, a feeling of of creative appetite I have from within me. Like if I'm not satisfying that, then I'm not super clear why I'm making stuff at all or telling stories. But then I also feel like I'm I'm not just doing that uh, for its own sake. I'm not just writing. I'm not just telling stories so that I can hear myself tell them. I they need to be connecting with other people, and in order to do that, it needs to be compelling and entertaining. And so, um, whether or not this story, like this this movie needs the movie needs to stand on its own, whether or not it happened. Uh, and it doesn't necess- It doesn't matter how much of it happened or how much it didn't. Uh, the fact that some of it happened, I think, makes the viewing experience more compelling and adds a level of mystery and intrigue to the whole thing. But ultimately, it it needs to work either way. Um, and vulnerability, I think, I think vulnerability and and I was gonna say vulnerability and honesty go hand in hand, but I don't think they necessarily do. I think you can be vulnerable by using artifice uh, and and expressing things uh, similar to what we were talking about earlier with this idea of like wearing a mask, sometimes by framing your story or, or heightening it in certain ways or using metaphor or, or uh, kind of putting the story in an adjacent context, we're almost more able to express ourselves. So I think it, I don't know, I think it just, it's like, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have any particular advice other than like, I think it's really important to, to know who you are uh, and, and, uh, and be connected to your feelings as a storyteller. Cause that's ultimately what you're trying to communicate to other people. Yeah. That's a really, really beautiful place to leave it, James. Um, before I let you go, can I ask um, what's coming up from you? Like, have you got your next project set up and, and yeah, what, what sort of stories would you like to explore in the future? Having, Having now shared this really personal part of yourself, what what stories that perhaps do lean into more more artifice, as you put it, are you excited to be to be telling coming up? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I got hired to write a few different things, uh, and I'll be directing those things as well. I'm really excited about those. I wrote a movie uh, last year that was on the blacklist this year called Pop, uh, and that's about this lonely little boy who blackmails his favorite pop star into being his best friend kind of feels like a little kid nightcrawler in the world of stars born or or kind of like a really fucked up, almost famous. It's going to be like really splashy and weird and fun. It's got like that King of comedy kind of like uh, desperation to connect with someone. Um, I'm really excited about that movie. I'm casting it right now uh, and hope to make it later this year. Um, but yeah, man, just, I mean, I feel like every day I'm just kind of showing up and trying to kind of, uh, I guess, chase the rabbit of my enthusiasm. Uh, (laughs) I love it, man. Well, yeah, James, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart, man. Oh, thank you so much, Al. It's great to see you. You've been listening to Script Apart. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.